you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to page 869 in the church Bible, or if you're using your own, to Luke chapter 11 this morning. And we are looking at Luke chapter 11, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 4, and we're going to look at this short uh, exposition of the Lord's Prayer this morning together as we continue our series on in this uh, series called Acceptable Worship. We are looking this morning at what it means that we call on God in worship. And so let me call on him just briefly again before we come to read his word together. We're going to look together at Luke 11 verses 1 through 4. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, like the disciples so long ago, need you to teach us how to pray. And so we ask this morning that you would bless the ministry of your word to that end. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would teach us not just in word, but in power. We pray that you would teach our hearts. We pray that you would grant a spirit of grace and supplication, that you would give us hearts that love to commune with you, hearts that love to call on you, hearts that love to praise you, and love to live in that constant fellowship that you have purchased with the shed blood of Christ. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please bless the ministry of your word. Change us, Lord. Change us into a praying community, we, we ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And uh, if you know anything about Luke's gospel and the distinctives of Luke, you'll know that Luke fixates on prayer more than any of the other evangelists. He has a, a keen awareness, which, which should not be surprising to us since he, he was a physician. And, and you would understand how he is focusing on those prayers that the sick prayed and crying out to Jesus and the compassion of Jesus. And he is focused on Jesus as the great high priest of his people, the one who makes our prayers acceptable, the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. And so it, it's not at all surprising that we find Luke focusing so much on prayer. And this chapter, he, he dedicates uh, the first 13 verses to instructions of our Lord Jesus about prayer. And we're looking here at the first four verses. And now Luke writes, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each Day, day by day, our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the most uh, important and interesting documents of the Reformation was a very short little work that Martin Luther wrote to his barber. His barber's name was Peter Bessendorf, and we don't know much about him except from uh, pictures we have of Luther. His barber was good at giving bowl cuts because Luther has a bowl cut in every picture, and, and that may be the only thing we know about him. He may have invented the bowl cut, although it's arguable that he didn't, but we do know his name was Peter Bessendorf, and, and Luther wrote a little book um, called A Simple Way to Pray. 
And Bassendorf had at, at some point asked Luther to teach him how to pray. Luther was renowned as a man who was mighty in prayer. There, there were times when people would listen in in the castle in Coburg where Luther was hiding out with Frederick from the, the attacks of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and there were times and stories where people would listen in because Luther would often pray uh, privately, but he would pray audibly. And his prayers are powerful. And in this little document, uh, Luther, among other uh, portions of scripture, he gives a very brief exposition of the Lord's Prayer and is very wonderful and very powerful. And you get the sense that Luther understands so much what Jesus was teaching about prayer when he gave his disciples the Lord's Prayer. Now, there's a couple things I want to say at the outset. The Lord's Prayer is not really the Lord's Prayer. I know you're going to be mad at me if you have been saying the Lord's Prayer for decades, and now suddenly this young buck that knows nothing tells you it's not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus actually never prayed this prayer. And so in that sense, it is not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus did pray a prayer in John 17, and so that would be more properly called the Lord's Prayer. But for whatever reason, we've given this title the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, interestingly, did pray several of the things in the Lord's Prayer, but there is one thing that he never prayed, forgive us our debts. Jesus never asked his Father for forgiveness, and so there are portions of this prayer that Jesus never prayed. Now, uh, the Lord's Prayer appears in both Matthew and Luke, and they are different expositions. Uh, theologians have wrestled with this. Is Luke wrong? Is Matthew wrong? Who's right? Who got it right? Well, very simply put, just like ministers often preach sermons in different settings and may preach the same sermon with little adjustments, Jesus does that both with the Sermon on the Mount and then similar context that he preaches and teaches here in Luke's gospel. And we find that it is an abbreviated form. And what that tells us is that the Lord's Prayer was never meant by Jesus to be a sort of liturgy. It's not meant to just, let's just all together, as nice as that is, and I love doing that. There's a part of me that wishes we had done that from the beginning of this church, and nothing's hindering us from doing it in the future. However, Jesus is giving a pattern. It is not meant to be a repetitious form. Um, he doesn't tell them, say these words. He actually says, when you pray, and in Matthew's gospel, he says, pray in this manner, after this pattern. Jesus is giving a pattern of instruction. He is, in a very real sense, teaching his disciples what it should look like for them to pray in, in context. What sort of things should we pray for? Should, what should be the starting point in prayer? What, what Should we just, whatever's on my heart at this moment, I'm just going to make it known to the Lord. He doesn't say that. He actually gives us a very clear structure that we are to follow. Now, it's interesting in Matthew's gospel, uh, the Lord's prayer is in the context of two errors of prayer. One is hypocrisy. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites who love to be heard standing out in the synagogues and praying these, these prayers to be heard by men. They have their reward. And then he says over here, don't be like the Gentiles. Now, um, the Gentiles didn't know God, and so they would repeat these mantras, and they would, they would try to just manipulate their deities with multiplicities of words, and they thought somehow they could twist the arm of their deities. 
And Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites, don't be like the Gentiles, but when you pray, go into the secret place and pray to your Father who sees in secret. And then he goes on to say, and when you pray, pray in this manner, and he gives that exposition in Matthew's gospel. Now, that may lead us to the conclusion that Jesus is against public prayer. There are some people who don't know their Bibles very well who will say, Jesus says pray in secret, therefore any public prayer is pharisaic. Nonsense, because Jesus prayed publicly. So take it up with Jesus. If you think we shouldn't have public prayers, and then there are people. There are people who think that uh, public prayer, prayer is such a private thing, it should be done individualistically, and, and, that's, and they don't like praying with other people. And it's very, very interesting that in both expositions of the Lord's Prayer, they are corporate in nature. Very interesting. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father. It's not an individual prayer. And here, notice in Luke's gospel that in, in verse 3, he, he teaches them again to pray corporately. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, the reason I chose this passage this morning is because we are looking at those elements of worship. Why do we do what we do in worship? And one of the things that you'll notice in a Presbyterian and Reformed church that you won't notice at a lot of churches is that we have a lot of prayer. Um, I have been at churches, most churches I visit that are not Reformed, generally have this at the beginning, Lord, just help us, be with us, amen. And then six songs and a talk. And so we are foreign. What we do is foreign. And I have had more than one person complain to me about we have too much prayer in this church. Believe me, our problem is not that we pray too much. Let me just put that out there and assure you our problem is not that we pray too much. In fact, there's a little... Uh, there's a little thing that ministers have that we talk among ourselves. If you really want to make a congregant or even ourselves uncomfortable, ask somebody how their prayer life is. Believe me, our problem is not that we pray too much. And prayer needs to be an essential part of worship. Prayer is an essential part of worship because prayer, in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, is the highest activity of the human soul. Did you know that? Prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. You know, we marvel at what athletes can do. We marvel at what artists can do. We marvel at what, uh, at what doctors can do and, and, and what, uh, what engineers can do. And we marvel at these things. Prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. The man or the woman, the boy or the girl who knows how to pray to God and knows how to pray from the heart to the Lord has accomplished the greatest task the human soul could ever set out to accomplish. And the fact that so many of us are so weak in prayer, and the fact that so many of us are put off by prayer, is more of an indictment of our own lack of advancement spiritually. I know it is for me, and so notice the disciples come to Jesus, and it's for them. The disciples in no, in no uncertain terms admit that they are weak. They admit that they don't know how to pray. They say, Lord, teach us how to pray. They are saying, we are not good at this thing. 
We don't know really what we should do. I mean, these are men that know the scriptures. Yes, they're fishermen. Yes, many of them were common men, but they grew up They grew up with the scriptures. They grew up with the Psalms. They knew the prayers of David. They knew the prayer of Solomon at the temple. They knew all the prayers in the Old Testament. They knew that God was a God of prayer. They knew that what worshiping God meant was that a people who had been reconciled to him through the redemption that he provided now could call on him and live in communion with him, and yet they don't know how to pray. And so Jesus gives them this form. He gives them a template. Um, one final thing is an introduction. I know it's quite a long introduction, but one of the interesting things about the Lord's Prayer is it's, it's just like the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. The Lord's Prayer is divided first um, with our relationship to God and God's glory and God's purposes, and then secondly, with ourselves and our relationship to others. Very interesting. Just like the, the law. Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the first four commandments, and then to love your neighbor as yourself is the second and like unto it, the last six commandments. It is, it is first vertical. I always have to think about that, by the way. I don't know if you ever confuse. It's like left and right. I had to do the L. It's first vertical, and then it's horizontal. And the Lord's Prayer is first vertical. When we pray, our prayer should be first God-centered. And so we're going to see three things this morning as we look at our Lord Jesus' instruction. First, we're going to consider that uh, the gathered assembly and on our own individually should be a people that first and foremost pray for God's glorious praise. And then secondly, we should be a people that pray for God's eternal purposes. And finally, we should be a people that pray for God's gracious provisions, his glorious praise, his eternal purposes, and then his gracious provisions. Well, notice the very first thing that Jesus tells us is how we are to address God. Now, let me say this this morning. If you do not think of God, first and foremost, as your father in heaven, you will never know how to pray to him rightly. Um, uh, And I know you know this quote, but J.I. Packer in Knowing God, what a great book if you've never read that. J.I. Packer uh, made that famous statement, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. That's such a profound thought. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. This is the unique privilege we have. You know, the Gentiles, they don't have a God. They don't have a father they can go to. They don't have a a father who they can revere and, and reverence and love. They don't have a father they can call on for provision. They don't have a father. What father, Jesus says, among you, if his son asks for a stone, will he give him a serpent? Jesus knew in human relations, if a son comes to a father and asks, the father wants to give him good things, and, and we're evil, Jesus says. How much more will your heavenly father not give you the best things? And one of the things that we see here at the outset um, is that prayer is supremely theological in nature. Prayer is supremely theological in nature. 
that, that if we are the sort of person that says, you know, I don't, I don't need all that theology, I just need, you know, it's just about having passion for the Lord and love for the Lord. You cannot have passion and love for the Lord if you do not know who the Lord is. If you do not know God as your Father, that's the great privilege. As many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. John, the Apostle John marvels at those truths. He has a whole, whole letter, 1 John, beloved, even now we are children of God. We don't know yet what we're going to be, but we are children of God. And we delight in the fact that we've been born of God and that we have the seed of God in us. And let me say this this morning. What Jesus and the apostles and the scriptures teach everywhere is that everyone is not God's child. Let me say that as clearly and as emphatically as I can this morning. If someone says everyone is God's child, that is patently untrue and it is patently unbiblical. Nowhere in the scriptures, in fact, by nature, we're children of wrath, Paul says in Ephesians 2. By nature, all of us we're under the sway of the evil one. Paul says we all were children of wrath and God has set his love and his mercy on us and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his son and he has not just transferred us to be servants, he has made us sons. He has given us the full adoption. He chose us, Paul says in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world that, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. That if I forget that I'm a son, I'm going to act like a slave. And if I start to think that I'm a slave, I'm going to view God as a harsh taskmaster. And if I view God as a harsh taskmaster, I'm not going to pray to him as a child to his father. And I'm not going to trust him because I don't really believe that he has good for me. And I want to say this this morning. I've said this in the past. Believing that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, really believing that I am righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus is the hardest thing in the world to believe. And right next to it, to believe that I am a child of God is actually the most difficult thing in the world because I know that I'm so unlike him by nature. I know that I haven't sought to please him as I should. I know that I have marred his image. I know that I have run as far from the Father as I can, and that's why the beautiful picture in this gospel of the Father coming out and embracing the Son. Think of this. A friend of mine wrote this this morning, and I had never thought about this. The loving Father embracing the prodigal while he still stunk of pig swine stink and wrapping his arms around his filthy, rebellious son that had come home. And that's the God to whom we pray. Father, and then notice Jesus tells us what we are to address to such a God. We are to address to him, first and foremost, our heart's desire that he would be glorified. You know, you tell a lot about people when you listen to them pray. I actually had an interesting conversation with Travis about that dynamic, just listening out in public when we may pray with people and you hear what people say, it, it reveals a lot. Uh, Eric Alexander says that a man or a woman prays the way he or she lives. What he means by that is, whatever you value most, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, even in prayers. And so Jesus is teaching us what should come out of our mouths, what should first be in our hearts, and what should first be in our hearts is that whatever else we may ask, we are asking that God get glory. That should be the first thing. You know, we were created 
for his glory. Now, you may say, doesn't God get glory in everything? I mean, God's sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over all the good, all the evil, everything. He ordained everything that comes to pass. Yes, he is absolutely sovereign. So why do we need to pray that God would get glory? Well, uh, I, maybe you won't find this helpful. I found this to be a helpful illustration this week. Um, Anna's dad has a farm that um, she grew up on, uh, and I imagine sitting on his lap and learning how to drive a truck illegally, probably, and, and other electronic mobile devices. I don't even know what. I don't know. Forerunners, sorry. And, uh, and now my sons are doing that. And, and as her dad uh, takes our sons and we see them driving on the farm, and he's got them on, their, on his lap, and, and they're steering, uh, he doesn't need them to steer. He, he doesn't need them to sit on his lap. He is doing that so that they can enjoy what he's doing. They can be with him. They can be doing what he's doing. I think in a very real sense, God is saying when we pray, hallowed be your name, he is saying, come sit on my lap and, and, and see me get glory and, and, and long for my great name to spread throughout the earth that the nations would know me, that a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would know me, that my name would be praised, that people would sing my name, that, that, that nations would know. You know, God does everything for his namesake. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed that little phrase in the Old Testament, but it always surfaces. Uh, David says it in Psalm 23. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his own namesake. Why does God sanctify me? Not just so that I can be more holy, but because he gets glory. When he sanctifies me, his name, his holy name is exalted. And in Ezekiel, when he pours out judgments on Israel and he judges the nations, he says, I'm doing this so that you may know that I am the Lord, so that the nations will know. You know, I, I fear, and I've said this to you before, I fear that in a pluralistic society, one of the great dangers we have is that while we want well, we want religious freedom for other citizens. We want that. That is good. We, always, we are always in jeopardy of falling into a sort of, well, who are we to say? I mean, they worship their God. We worship ours. That's idolatry. God does everything. Jesus says we are to pray, Father, hallowed, revered, reverenced, worshipped, be your name. And then, Jesus tells us, secondly, that we are to be praying for God's eternal purposes. Now, this is an abbreviated uh, form of this prayer, and those of you who have memorized this from your youngest uh, days in the church will know that there is more, that in Matthew, Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what Jesus is doing here is essentially saying the same thing. He is saying that what should drive our prayers, what should motivate our prayers more than anything, is that God's kingdom would come. Now, I heard this week, and I, I just want to share this. He doesn't say, um, your democracy come. I'm just telling you, he doesn't say that. He says, your kingdom come. And, and the reason why I have to say that is because, again, we are always in jeopardy. We who love democracy are in jeopardy of forgetting that behind whatever government we may be living in and behind all the other governments of the world, there is the great government of God and God's government triumphs over all and God's 
government is eternal. His kingdom is everlasting. And as John Piper very rightly says, 10,000 years after America is here and is a footnote in human history, Jesus will still be king. And here is the king. Here is the one teaching us to pray as we ought to pray. He is the same one that said he brought the kingdom with him. He said, uh, if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has already come. Now, how do we reconcile that? If Jesus said the kingdom had come and that he was the king, and when he came, he was establishing the kingdom, what does it mean that we should pray, your kingdom come? Well, very simply put, it means uh, that God's rule and reign in the hearts of men and women, certainly beginning with our own hearts, and in the hearts of men and women throughout the nations would become more and more and more evident. We should want that. We should long for God's rule and reign in the hearts of men and women to become evident because so many do not know the manifestation of his kingdom in their hearts and lives. And, and we should be praying that uh, the gospel spreads to the corners of the earth. And we should be praying that everything that opposes him, you know, our, our uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism written by uh, the, the Puritans, the English Puritans, uh, at the uh, request of the parliament, have an exposition of uh, the second petition, your kingdom come, and in it they say that one of the things that that means is that we pray that God would destroy Satan's kingdom, and in every way that that manifests itself, that he would overthrow that, that he would limit Satan's ability to cover the earth with idolatry, that he would destroy false religions, and that the truth of the Lord Jesus would become evident everywhere. That's, you know, I've actually had somebody tell me years ago that uh, they heard me pray that, that God would overthrow Islam, and they said, I've never heard that before, and it almost sounded mean. If you love the truth, which is always provocative, you would not think that's mean. You would not think that's mean. You would think that that's the most loving thing in the world, that people would know the kingly reign of Jesus as the Redeemer in their lives. That is the most loving thing. Why would we want men and women to be under, uh, under the, the darkness of false religion? Why would we want people to go to hell? How, how can that be loving? And so Jesus says we are to pray first for God's glorious praise. Secondly, we are to pray for his eternal purposes. And then thirdly, we're moving quickly this morning, notice that we are to be praying for God's gracious provisions. Now, if most of us were honest, we would have to say that um, when we pray, and I'm included, a lot of times we go right to the daily bread. Whatever that may be. That may be food, that may be physical healing. Those, those are the sort of things that generally permeate our prayers, if we're honest. And they're right to pray those things. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say first and foremost, when you pray, say, Forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one and give us this day our daily bread. I think that that's important. I think that's interesting. Jesus, even though everywhere else in the Bible seems to start with the spiritual, here he starts with the physical. He recognizes we need bread. I mean, if you don't eat bread, if you don't eat for enough days, you're not praying. You're dying. You need food and sustenance and provision and and he wants you to know that those are good and right things for which we should be praying. It is right. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has an interesting thought on this. He says, you know, I don't know whether 
Jesus is saying every day we should say, Lord, give me my bread today, or if we should just be generally praying for it. But he said, I think this prayer is so, um, is so often neglected. I mean, how many of us actually ask the Lord to provide food for us? Not thank him when it's in front of us, but ask him for it. And Sinclair says, we've become so accustomed to convincing ourselves that we have worked hard enough and that we deserve the food that's in front of us, and that while we may, yes, say thank you to God for that, we have forgotten that we couldn't even breathe and make our heart beat or move our legs to get up and get to the fridge and open the door and get the food out that we've put in there if God didn't give us the ability to do so. We have forgotten that we can't even put our hand out for provisions. Now, what is God, what is what is Jesus telling us? He's telling us that, that our Father wants to provide for us. He wants to give us all of our provisions. He wants to give us everything that we need. Jesus will speak about that. He'll say, your Father knows what you have need of before you ask, and so ask. And, and be content with food and clothing. With these, we'll be content. And yet, we are to pray. We're to pray, give us daily our daily bread. And then notice he moves now to the spiritual. I I find it fascinating that in Matthew's gospel, the, um, the Lord's prayer is couched uh, at one and the same time in, in Jesus um, rejecting hypocrisy, warning about hypocrisy, warning about praying like Gentiles, those two errors, and then after it and everything uh, moving around it has to do with forgiveness. And uh, what Jesus does is he expounds this next petition. Now, here's what I want to say this morning. What Jesus is saying when he tells us to pray that we are to uh, ask the Lord to forgive us as we have forgiven others, he is, he is not saying God owes us forgiveness because we have forgived, uh, forgiven others. Let's just take that away. It's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that if you um, or if I am the sort of person who harbors bitterness resentment, anger, and uncharitableness toward others when they have hurt us or maybe even when they have not hurt us that we are in jeopardy of proving that we have not been forgiven by God. Jesus is absolutely saying that. If we are not a people fixating on our own sin, our own rebellion, our own need for the Savior, sitting at the foot of the cross, and we are trigger happy to chew others out, hold faults against others, keep a list of wrongs against others, and we are not keeping short accounts, as the Puritans used to say, with God and with others, then we are in jeopardy of showing that we know nothing about what it is to have our sins forgiven and that we are not forgiven. I, listen, if this is the only thing you remember today, please take it with you. I really think it's so important. Jesus donates so much time, dedicates, sorry, dedicates so much time to it in Matthew's Gospel. This is not a joke. If we are unforgiving people, Jesus says you're not forgiven. You're forgiving people forgive people. Hurt people hurt people. Forgiving people forgive people. And so if I recognize how sinful I am, how much pollution, how prayerless I often am, if I recognize my, my failures and my faults and the pollution of my heart and, and the, the, the pervasive evils that are always there, even in a regenerate heart, 
the indwelling sin, if I recognize every day I need the Lord to forgive me, how can I not forgive others? You know, it's one of the great tragedies of life that the whole of Christianity is built on the idea that God has provided a way to forgive sinners, and yet his church is full of people that don't forgive each other. That's, that should make us marvel. Um, Jesus realized that was a major problem, and so our prayers, and that's why we do a confession of prayer. We do that to stir that up. I am the one. When your pastor sits up here, I am confessing my sins. I am not thinking about anybody else's sins. I want to think about my sin and my need for forgiveness and my need for repentance, my need for continual washing. Um, that's why we do what we do. And Jesus emphasizes that we're to pray that and we're to pray having a heart that is eager and ready to forgive anyone who is indebted to us. And then finally, notice Luke gives us a short, sort of uh, consolidated form of the end of this prayer. He says, and lead us not into temptation. Now, this is tricky because the prayer opens with Father and then closes with lead us not into temptation. And, and you may be one of those intellectual types that likes to say, well, what kind of father would lead his children into temptation? Well, the God of heaven and earth would. He led his son into temptation in the wilderness for our redemption. The Bible says Jesus was led by the Spirit, led by God into temptation. Um, John Owen, the great Puritan, has this just profoundly insightful thought. He says, Jesus became like us in order to be tempted. We are tempted in order to become like him. Now, there are those times, and this is very interesting. I heard this recently, and I thought that's it's so helpful. There are those times where um, my sinful desires um, and, and the outward temptation to enter into sin don't line up. The outward, uh, the, the, the occasion isn't there, but the desire is still there. And then there are these other times where the occasion to sin is there and opportunity, a particular sin, and then my desires are not there by God's grace. And, and when, when we really are in danger, and most of us feel this, is when those two things align and the occasion is there and the desire for it is there, and we give in to it, and we give in to it, and we don't put on the armor of God, and we don't fight against it, and we don't pray that God would not lead us into that temptation. Now, Jesus is not teaching us, pray that you may not be tempted. Um, you know the, the hymn we sing, the new version of uh, I Ask the Lord by John Newton. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, and then... And, it's that heart-wrenching hymn, and he says later, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. And we know that. If you're a Christian for any amount of time, you know what that's like. And, and then the end of the hymn is, God says to him, in this way, I answer prayer for grace and faith. That the temptations are necessary because the temptations teach us to trust him and not ourselves. The temptations teach us to admit our weakness. You know, that's, that's everything. That's everything. We, you, I'm going to use you this morning. You need to admit your weakness. 
You need to admit your sinfulness. You need to admit your, your inability to stand. The Apostle Paul says, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Simon Peter learned that, didn't he? He learned it. He said, Lord, I'll never deny you. And he's the first to deny him. Let me just say this. When somebody falls, you say, oh, I'd never do that. That's a really, really scary place to be. That's a super, I'd never do that. We've probably said that 100,000 times in our life, all of us. I would never do that. Yes, you would, and you may still now because you've said that. And so Jesus is teaching us as he taught the disciples in the garden. Remember he said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And then he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, if our Lord Jesus had to pray in that garden, not my will, but yours be done. If the sinless Son of God, heading to the cross to atone for all the times we entered into temptation and gave in, if that one, going forward to be nailed to the tree to provide the forgiveness for which we have prayed and that we offer to others, if that Lord Jesus showed us that he had to resign his will to the will of his Father, to seek first the glory of the Father, with whom he was one with as God in all eternity, but as man submitted himself to perfectly. If that Lord Jesus prayed every part of the Lord's Prayer except forgive me my sins and forgive us our sins, but taught us to do so, how utterly vital it is for us. Um, I want to close with this this morning. I noted that I know people find it strange that we, we pray as much as we do in the service and um, fight against thinking that's strange. Embrace the fact that worship is more than singing songs. Too much of American evangelicalism has, has limited worship to singing and music. Prayer is worship. Prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. Prayer is the breathing of a redeemed soul. Prayer is a privilege that you have as a son or daughter of God that nobody else on the face of the earth has if they're not in Christ. Jesus purchased your ability to pray by shedding his blood on the cross. He purchased prayer for you. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He makes our prayers acceptable. He gives us the spirit to make groanings that can't be uttered to help us to cry out in times of need for deliverance from temptation and the evil one. I hope that you'll be animated by this. I hope that I'll be animated by this. I hope that we'll see that prayer needs to be a lot more central in our lives, in our worship, and that it's one of those great privileges that the Lord Jesus has purchased for us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you, we praise you, we give you the glory that is due to your name. We thank you that you have enabled us to be a people who can pray, and we thank you that you hear us when we pray. We thank you that you've given us the mediator to make our prayers heard and acceptable. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have taught us how to pray. We ask that you would give us hearts that say, as yours did, not our will, but yours be done. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from the evil one. We pray that we would seek first your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.